Come in, we've been expecting you. Margot told me that this poor chap can waffle on. Oh dear. <laughs> Hello, my name is Paul Godbold and I will be your host today. I'm a full member of the Chartered Institute of Journalists, the world's oldest journalistic society, and I've always had a curious mind. For your pleasure, I will be holding conversations with great minds, industry leaders, experts and outstanding people where I'll ask them about their lives, goals and the area they specialise in. Get on with it. So, without further ado, let's begin. For this episode, I'm chatting with Sue Stockdale, a history-making explorer, motivational speaker, author, former international athlete and executive coach. I've read your memoir explore a life of adventure and I want to thank you for reigniting my passion for reading books. Until this year I hadn't read a paper-based book for nigh on 30 years and yours was only my third. And it was your book that reminded me what a pleasure it can be so thank you. Well I'm really pleased that it had that effect on you Paul. Yeah it it did. I, I love the fact that you were so frank and open and honest and it just resonated with me. The things that you've done in your life, I think to myself, could I have and would I have? And I think the answer to both of those is no. <laughs> you've, uh, you, you're, you're somewhat of a superwoman. I mean, you, you've led an extraordinary life and you wear so many hats that it's almost impossible to encapsulate the things that you've done in one conversation. But I'm going to do my best. So. Before you became an adventurer, you were an athlete. And at school, you were lucky to have Margot Wells, the wife of the Olympic 100-metre champion, Alan Wells, to encourage you. And that must have been amazing. What do you remember from those days? And did that instill a can-do attitude in you? I think what I do remember from those days, Paul, is the excitement at seeing a real live Olympic gold medal up close because Alan Wells came into our school and he brought his uh, medal from the Moscow Olympics when he won the 100 metres. And I, I just couldn't believe that I could see something like that. And, and I, that gave me inspiration. And then, of course, Margot, his wife, was our PE teacher. And she just really encouraged me along to, to take my talent for running and to, to sort of do something with it and to turn up at a, a local athletics club every week and to train to try and be better. And I think that's maybe where this curiosity of mine really started to show itself because I began to compete in races and I did a three mile fun run. And then I'd say, oh, I wonder, I wonder if I could go further than three miles. Maybe I could do five miles and then 10 miles and then half marathons and so on. And that thought, I wonder if what's possible is really still what drives me today. <laughs> wow. I remember when I was in uh, at school because um, you and I are of pretty much exactly the same age, and I was lucky and I have uh, lucky enough to have David Wilkie come to my school. He was running a charity campaign. I think it was called Just Swimming with Wilkie, and I've got a photograph and he put his medals around my neck. Unlike yourself, it didn't inspire me because I, I wasn't a fan of swimming, and uh, and be, and before you ask, I, I can't run. <laughs> but. So there's there two there, but it, it was it was amazing. It was amazing. Before you became an adventurer, you were an athlete. Not only were you an athlete, you were incredibly smart. 
because in your book, and I'm not going to uh, boost your ego, ego too much, but your your exam results were quite extraordinary. And it was at a time when I consider exams to be far tougher than they are today. People will argue with that, but um, they they didn't in they didn't have to go through the O level in CSE era. <laughs> and in those days, we used to have careers counsellors sit down with us and turn around and say, "What do you want to be? Do you remember what you actually said to the counsellor?" I absolutely do. Yes, I said I want to be a cook on an oil rig, and the person's eyes opened up like saucers, as if to say, why would anybody want to do that? And why would you as a girl want to do that? And I <laughs> I don't even know why I wanted to do that, apart from I loved cooking. And there must have been something about the unknown or the extreme that had an appeal for me. And I just thought about toughing it out in that perhaps what I perceived to be a challenging environment of the North Sea on an oil rig was going to be fun of some type. Uh, of course, I never did that in real life, but uh, that was what I went along to the career advisor and said that I wanted to do. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's probably a first, isn't it, for the careers advisor? <laughs> yes. A little bit similar to many years later when I went along to the bank manager to start up a business as a motivational speaker. And they said, what? Oh, that doesn't fit into any of our categories here in the bank. Hmm. Not too sure about that. <laughs> yeah, but in those days, at least you had the advantage of talking to the bank manager face to face. Absolutely. Just keeping to your sort of early life. I mean, I read that uh, in the book you talked about your your cycling holiday with your friends Laura and Ray. And was that what you would consider to be your first real adventure? I'd say so. It was the first adventure that we did uh, properly away from adults. We were 14, 15 at the time, something like that, maybe even 16. And today, I'm not sure if I had children that I would encourage them to be at that age cycling for three days on a trip on their own, unsupervised. Oh, how things have changed. It did give us a great sense of freedom, though, and a sense of accomplishment, even although we lost the map before we could have gone a few miles. <laughs> is, is that one of the major, major motivations behind your exploration, the, the feeling of freedom? Yeah, there there is a, a big sense of that. And also connectedness with the outdoors and nature. Not that I really understood that when I was a teenager, but certainly these days I recognise that every time I feel that I'm in the place that really brings out the best in me, it's generally something related to nature's and the outdoors. Wow, it's amazing you should say that because that is why I go out hiking. There's something about being connected with nature that almost refreshes my mind. It clears all the negativity away. Because what, one of the things I've been doing recently is I've been meditating a lot, uh, just exploring sort of the scientific research that says that I can reduce and increase various parts of my brain. And when I'm out there, I, 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 it makes me feel more human that makes sense yeah oh absolutely Paul there is a there is science as I'm sure you've come across yourself scientific research that shows that there are certain chemicals I think uh, certain hormones I'm probably not using the right word here that are generated when we're in nature we we it generates a particular calmness within us and I also think there's something to be said for 
looking around at nature and seeing that no matter what happens, the sun will always rise in the morning, the sun will always set in the evening. Plants have a growing season, trees, leaves fall off if they're not evergreen in the winter, and so on. There's a cyclical nature, a cyclical approach to nature that can give us a sense of confidence in a way. And that's one of the things I see that despite many, many uncertainties that we all face in the world, and I know from some of my polar expeditions, there's lots of uncertainties in the Arctic. Mm. You don't know what's going to happen. But what you can have certainty of is that, you know, the, the, the regularity of life and the cycle of nature. You know, maybe we don't always slow down enough to really take notice of that and feel the sense of confidence that that gives us as human beings. Mm. We're not just on this world on our own. No, no, you're right. Going back to your athletics, because this is something that I mean, most people, when they think of you, they think of adventure. I think of speaking, writing, but you were an extraordinary athlete and I've always loved athletics. I mean, one of the reasons I was so thrilled when I was reading your book is I was a huge fan of Alan Wells. He was probably the most muscly man I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I remember actually watching the final on telly and uh, both the 100 and 200 and the elation I got when he won the 100 and the disappointment when he was just pipped in the 200. I still recall those feelings to this day. When, when you found out that you'd become a member of the Scottish athletics team, do you recall what your emotions were? And did, was there any fears with regards to expectations? I, I felt incredibly proud to, to get that telephone call to say that I could be part of the team. And I think what helped was because uh, it, it, certainly one of the competitions I was competing in for Scotland was as part of a cross-country championships. And therefore, the, I was part of a team. My, my my results at the end of the day would be counted along with others. And there is something to be said for kind of the safety in a team. It's not just about you. And another occasion when I represented Scotland, it was in the 3,000 metres in an indoor competition. And again, the same sense there. Yes, I was having to do the running, having to do my best in the race. However, overall, the, the way Scotland would be measured in terms of result was everybody's result. And I like that, that you can put your contribution in and you're part of a bigger team around you. But there is something to wearing a vest with pride that has a Scottish emblem on it. And just to know that somehow I'd managed to reach that level of excellence, if you like, in that sport, it was a very proud moment for me. Yeah, I mean, that must have been the first time that you actually put a proper footnote down in history. Yeah, yeah. You don't think about it at the time, of course. And no, no sooner had I competed in those competitions, I still wanted to improve my time and still wanted to be better. So I think the... The other learning I've had is that continuous improvement is never just being satisfied with as is, always mm. seeking to think, how could I learn? How could I grow? How could I develop? How can I get that extra tenth out? Yeah. yeah. Did, did you, were you conscious at that time of um, what your limits were? Or did you just, <laughs> or, or did you just think to yourself, no, I'm just going to just keep getting better. I'm going to keep getting faster. My endurance is going to keep improving. I didn't in a way think about it too much. Maybe in my earlier years, I was much more of a 
what I would call like an activist way of learning. So I was always about doing stuff and maybe the thinking aspect was a little bit less. So my way of improving was like to do more, to push more and not necessarily always to have maybe the intelligence or the reflective capacity to slow down and think, well, am I doing the right things? Is what I'm, is the action I'm taking going to help me improve? And over again, the course of my lifetime since then, I've come to reflect more and to realize sometimes it isn't about doing more. Sometimes it's about thinking and then acting. So that's one of the things I've certainly learned over my lifetime so far. Oh, fantastic. Aside from your speaking, coaching, athletics, writing, people will know you as being the first British woman to ski to the magnetic North Pole. Another footnote in history. And your skiing to the Magnetic North Pole was just one of a huge number of adventures you've been on. Would you mind telling our listeners about some of the incredible places and adventures you've been on, please? Well, I think the one thing that they've all had in common is most of them are to quite remote or extreme environments where there's few people and a lot of potential for danger and risk. So I've been to the geographical North Pole as well as the magnetic North Pole. And the listener might think, well, what's the difference? I would say they're both cold and white uh, and they're both difficult to get to. And then I've been down to Antarctica, uh, skied across the Greenland ice cap. So there's a white theme going on here, as you can tell. And then in the warmer climbs, I've also been to Chile, which is a little bit warmer down in Patagonia, certainly in the summertime, and also into Kenya. And then uh, many other places in the world, I think I've now travelled to 70 countries. But those are the kind of major expeditions of uh, at least a month in duration in most of those cases, if not longer. Mm. You you also did another adventure in Yugoslavia. And I call it an adventure because it's a, well, let's just say a film, it's almost like following a film script, isn't it? (laughs) Tell tell me about that, because that's not something that most people would sign up to. Yes, it was a one-year contract in a war zone in the former Yugoslavia, working for the United Nations back in 1994. And again, you know, I talked about curiosity earlier, Paul. It was really the same thing here. I I saw this job advert, just wasn't really paying attention much. You know, we flick through the the press often to see what's on the go. And there was this job, and and, uh, the way the, the, the job advert said was, something like challenging opportunities for people not afraid of hard work in a rapidly changing environment. Now, you could take that many ways. And I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. And I, and I half-heartedly, with no real focus or commitment, sent off my CV and thought, let's see what happens here. And lo and behold, I found myself having an interview and being offered a job. And then I did have to think, wow, here's me being offered a job in quality assurance, working with the, the UN, in a war zone, and I was employed in a very uh, you know, successful corporate organization with all the tra- trappings and trimmings of a corporate lifestyle. And most of my family and friends thought I was completely nuts to even consider something like that. <laughs> and, and I used all the, the logical processes, you know, you brought my thinking to bear here. What's the pros? What's the cons of taking on this? And then I just listened to my gut feel. And my intuition said, this is too good an opportunity to refuse, Sue. You've got to go for it. And it was probably the most difficult decision I made uh, to take a big a big risk. 
but I'm so glad I did because it really taught me that when we take a risk and we are prepared to step into the unknown and believe that it will work out, wow, that really improves your confidence so much afterwards. And then nothing can ever be as scary again because you've tried that once. And, uh, you know, I'm still alive. It wasn't at all like the press had uh, billed it to be. We only see, of course, uh, one aspect of life in a country, according to what the media present to us. I met some amazing people. I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily put my hand up to go to a war zone again, but at least I know what it's like. And uh, it certainly was the most odd onboarding process to be given a flak jacket and a helmet on day one. <laughs> Blimey. And uh, let me start by saying that uh, I'm, I'm actually siding with your uh, friends and family that thought you were nuts to actually undertake that. <laughs> wow. Um, I want to go back to your um, historical snow adventure. Let me best way to describe it. <laughs> One of the things that crossed my mind is that when you're with other people in such confined environments, with the best will in the world, there's got to be some personality clashes. Got to be people that you just think, I just don't want to see your face. And I'm just wondering how you how you have to deal with that. Is it you being the angel that's turning around and saying, no, I'm going to close the gap. I'm going to make sure you continue being horrible. You continue being annoying and I'm going to make life easy for you. Was that you doing it? One thing I said to myself, because I were a few frustrating people, as I'm sure I was for others at times, so it's not just everybody else. I said to myself, I don't have to like these people forever. I only have to get on with them for this period of our expedition. So in my head, this wasn't a never-ending endurance test. This was a, a period of time where I'd have to show more tolerance, show more patience, and at times then maybe just speak up and challenge if somebody was saying something that blatantly I disagreed with or you know was was shocked by. So there is nowhere to escape to. You can't in a tent in the Arctic then say, right, I've had enough, I'm off because you would be out onto the ice, it'd be minus 40 degrees and you'd probably get frostbite. So, you know, we all face tough times sometimes. I think it is a good way to learn tolerance and understanding. And another big lesson I've learned during my lifetime so far is you can't change other people, you can only change yourself. And I think that's what you were alluding to in your comment Mm -hmm. there, is just to bite my tongue and keep quiet or to make some point, but to recognise it doesn't have to last forever. Mm. The trekking across the snow, I tried to imagine what that would be like because I've done various things in my life and I've I'll hold my hand up, particularly when I've been outdoors. I've got to the I've got to the point where I've actually turned around and said, Why am I doing this? I've turned around and I've gone back. Was there any times that you thought to yourself, if I wasn't with these people, I'd give up? No. Wow. One of the things that I've certainly learned is, <laughs> and I mentioned it earlier, is not to overthink and at times, is just to take action. And the Arctic is one of those times where that's quite a useful thing to be able to do, is to not start thinking, well, well I could do this or I could do that or maybe I could, maybe we could get picked up or maybe I could stop. It's just to take all of that thought out of your mind, switch it off and say, just take the next step. Let's see what happens. Just take the next step. Just take the next five minutes. 
and to block out all the catastrophizing and possibilities of what could go wrong or we could be rescued or saved by somebody else. If it's not an option, just not think about it. And that's the way I started and finished that expedition is we're in it as a team to succeed. And it, if, we're, if we do have to stop, it's not going to be because of me to let the team down. And, you know, I'm sure you don't go into your bathroom in the evening and say, oh, should I clean my teeth this evening? You just do it because it's part of the habit of our lives. We clean our teeth. And that's the same in the Arctic. You don't say, oh, will I get out and ski today? Or will I ski for the next hour? You just say, I'm skiing. How can I make the best of it? So there's a built-in assumption of success and continuing on. And that's how I approach most things today. Wow. <laughs> I wish I could have that mindset. But that's one of your other hats that you wear, which is you actually instill that mindset in people, which we'll get to you a little bit later. When you got to the magnetic North Pole, do you recall what was going on inside your head? Yes, I do. And it was, there was pride that we'd been successful, but that wasn't the overriding emotion. It was one of, of sadness in a way, because we'd built up such a camaraderie and trust and bond from spending a month together out there on the ice that I knew that as soon as we accomplished our objective, that cocoon of uh, friendship that we'd all created together would be broken with a plane flying in to collect us we'd see other people we'd then fly back and obviously get on with our normal lives and I was in a point of transition then I'd, I'd um, got divorced from my husband so in a way I didn't have a job to go back to either I'd, I'd left my job to to pursue the the UN project and then prepare for the expedition so in a way the the safety and the certainty of being in that team was really an, an important part of the the enjoyment for me and so getting to the North Pole signaled the end of that and I think that that was partly on my mind as well so uh, yeah it was it was an odd thing and made me realize that it's not always about getting to a result that is really the important thing it's about the enjoyment of the journey along the way and mm. uh, even if we, if even if we aren't successful, whether it's in business or in the endeavour that we're doing, if we can enjoy the process, it's going to make it all the more interesting for everybody. Wow, yeah. Well, when people meet you for the first time, and they turn around and say, "So, what do you do, Sue? What's the first word that comes out of your mouth? Well, what is it? I mean, because you say you've got so many hats that you wear. Well, it, it, I, I will often change how I describe myself according to who who I'm speaking to at the time and where where their level of sort of interest is whether they're a sports person or a business person or something else at, at its heart I often talk about some sort of adventuring so I might say I'm an adventurer I help people in business to go on an inner adventure to explore their potential those are the sorts of phrases that come to my mind there was a period in uh, in my business career where I didn't ever really even mention my polar expeditions or adventures, I was almost embarrassed about it and thought that's not what people want to hear in business. And then when people did discover that I had this whole side to me about adventures and expeditions, that's all they wanted to hear about. <laughs> and they didn't want to know about any of my business experience. And I've found a way now of integrating both of those things in together and really this idea of helping leaders to embark on an inner adventure for themselves 
is really what excites me because that's an adventure for me as well. I even describe it in the the way when I'm setting up a coaching relationship with a new client. I'll describe to them, I'll say, we're going to go on an adventure together. We're going into the unknown. And if we don't trust each other, this isn't going to work. So I need to create a safe space with you so that you trust me and I trust you. And you can see their eyes sparkling. They get into it. They want to go on that adventure. And it, it kind of sets the expectation that it's not always going to be easy, that there'll be unknowns, but together we're going to have a sense of accomplishment. And so that's the way I now really integrate this idea of adventuring into my, what I would call my business career as well. Um, so yeah, adventure is like a stick of rock. That's the message that really runs through all of the things that I do and what I absolutely love doing. Brilliant. Do you do any mental exercises to get yourself in the mode? <laughs> I'm laughing, yes, because I'm probably so uh, con- or unconscious of them now because they're so inbuilt into how I uh, do things, uh, Paul. Yes, I think maybe some of the questions might be helpful for listeners to to hear and be reminded of themselves because I'm sure many other people ask themselves these same things. I always say, "What's the worst that can happen?" So if I'm if I'm put into a difficult situation, okay. So what's the worst that can happen today? That's not too bad. I'm just going to do it anyway. So it's it's a it's a reason to just take the action despite discomfort. I often say to myself, so what what can I learn from this? So even if it's a difficult situation or going into the unknown, I'm going to treat it like a learning opportunity. And I'm going to think about it as an experiment. Because you know, when we were back in our old science days at school doing experiments, I don't know if you're like me, but my, my experiments rarely were successful. Always something went wrong or something went unexpected. It kind of gave me permission to fail. And I think if we go into any of our activities these days with that same mindset, not giving ourselves too much expectation and saying, you know, it's okay to be a human. It's okay to fail. And I'll learn something from it. I'd try and embark on most things like that. Not always successfully, but those are the sorts of messages I tell myself on a regular basis when I've got to do something new or different or uncomfortable. Brilliant. We're pretty much the same age. And one thing I've discovered is that I can still do things that I thought were way beyond me a few decades ago. And I might be a little more creaky, but I still managed to amaze myself. Do you think age is a barrier? Was it just in the mind? I don't think age is a barrier, Paul. I think mindset is a barrier. <laughs> and I think that's that was a limiting factor for many people that they don't believe that they can do things. And then perhaps they use age as an excuse to not do it because they have a preconceived idea of what somebody of a certain age is or isn't able to do. I think when we come at life with innate possibility and curiosity, it doesn't matter what age we are. In fact, on one of my expeditions to the geographic North Pole, I had an 80-year-old gentleman along in our team with us. He was from Germany. His wife had died and he wanted to live life to the full. So it doesn't matter what age you are, you can still do expeditions and adventuring. Wow. I, I hadn't, did, Was that in the book? I'm sorry if it was because I... No, I didn't put that in, but that's, that's, he was on our Russian expedition from Siberia up to the geographical North Pole. So 80 years old, that is just extraordinary. I wonder if that person set a record for being the oldest person (laughs) or certainly going to be one of the oldest people that, uh, oh, wow. Your campfire stories must've been incredible. 
<laughs> well, you know, there's there's a I bet he had plenty of tales of life's experiences to, to to share with other people. So yeah, it's all it's all about mindset, and and I think the more we become any of us become aware of how our thinking influences and shapes our behaviour, then the more of choice we've got to change it if we want to. Yeah. On all of your adventures, is there one particular magnificent memory that stands out above all others? There is a difficult question. <laughs> there, are, there are so so many uh, different memories. Magnificent, I think, I can't think of one specific example. What I can think of is the feeling I had of just comfort and and laughter and fun with other people in an extreme place like the Arctic. I, I, I think I did write about one of these in the book, Paul, where on the first few days of our magnetic North Pole expedition, so I'd never really done anything like that before, been in the Arctic environment, temperatures of minus 20 Celsius and colder. There we were lying in our tent, four of us, and we're all in our sleeping bags, lying like sardines together, all squashed up. And each of us had been able to bring a, a luxury with us. And one of my team members, uh, one of my teammates had a book of Wendy Cope poetry. And now Wendy Cope is a very humorous poet. So he began to speak in his eloquent English accent, rather like yours. He began to recite some of Wendy Cope's poetry. Well, we were just giggling and laughing. It was so funny. I never would have thought that there I would be in the Arctic laughing with somebody reciting poetry to me in a tent. And you could see the the uh, almost like smoke, you know, their breath mm -hmm. in the cold temperature, their, their breath inside the tent as they're expressing this poetry. Now, I'm not really uh, into poetry big time anyway, so that was going to be out of the ordinary for me. And it's just such a lovely mental picture I have in my mind that, the simple things that can make us laugh during tough times are sometimes the things that we remember. That is an incredible memory. That is just amazing. I keep going on about the fact that you are such an amazing person. And uh, it's true. That's the thing. It, it, you know, it's, it's not something that's uh, PR or puff or anything else. It is true. And in 2005, you were recognised as a pioneer to the nation by Her Majesty the Queen. How did that make you feel when you heard that news? <laughs> Again, a sense of pride. I must say, I'm not sure my husband always thinks I'm amazing. So you're, you're, <laughs> descri <laughs> you're describing me as an amazing person. And, uh, you know, it depends on what your situation you're looking at at any given time. I mean, I think, I think the... Um, it's lovely to get accolades, Paul, and to get recognition at its heart. I suppose I really want to be uh, rem remembered, if you like, or, or known for helping other people to bring out the best in themselves. So these days, I'm not doing expeditions and adventures necessarily for just my own kind of selfish pleasure. I always think there's got to be a bigger purpose. There's got to be a bigger reason for it. And if that story can inspire other people, to maybe just take one little step into the unknown, to think like yourself, oh, I wonder if, I wonder what's possible. That for me makes my life feel really worthwhile. And um, that is what drives me. And, and 
when I hear feedback from others about what, like reading this book, as you said at the start, the the effect it had on you was maybe making you want to read more books in future. That is really satisfying and far more enjoyable for me, actually, than some sort of external accolade, as nice as they are, of course. I was hoping that you were going to say that, to be honest. <laughs> oh. So coaching, speaking, writing, adventuring, do you have a favourite? I love speaking. <laughs> That's why I'm on a podcast, of course. Yeah. So. And I watched your I TED love- talk. I watched your TED your TED talk as well. I mean, hats off for being invited to something as that, because that's something that's reserved for only the best. I think others will be the judge of it. I think it brings out the best of me in terms of inspiring that point I was making a minute ago about the effect uh, on other people and what what perhaps my messages or stories or uh, speeches cause them to do. And I think the what I particularly enjoy is is speaking to a large audience and inspiring them to 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 not think, wow, how brilliant Sue is, because that's not my intention, but to think, wow, Sue's, you know, if Sue can do it, I can do it. She's made it sound easy enough that I could take the first step. And it's that sense of for any of us, when we've maybe got a desire or a motivation, a, a goal that we want to accomplish, Getting off our sofa is sometimes the most difficult thing because we talk ourselves out of it or we say, well, yes, but I uh, haven't got the finances, the investment, I haven't got support, et cetera. And we put all the reasons, the obstacles in our in our way. My answer to that would be, well, what if you just took one step? What if you just did one little thing? What would happen? What would you learn? And it's that that I want to, that essence I want to leave with the listener in a motivational presentation or even on this podcast for that matter, that they could just think, what if, and then take the first step of action. Mm. That's what excites me, as you can probably tell. Yeah. <laughs> well, so what, what is an average week for Sue Stockdale? <laughs> well, there is nothing average about my week, but maybe the things that that are milestones in a week that one one thing I always do is, I have something different for breakfast every day. So sometimes I think my husband would just like to have cereal every day and be done with it. And there's me saying, no, we're having something different today. And what that uh, does is, A, it brings variety to our our week so we get to try different things. It also serves as a reminder. We, We all can get into habitual ways of doing things. We can all just sail through our day and our week and not really be conscious about what we're doing. If you've got to consciously think in the morning, what am I having for breakfast? It means you've got to think and you've not got to assume it was the same as yesterday. Now, as human beings, to be able to cope with the ever-changing world that we have around us, we've got to be able to adapt. And that means becoming comfortable with the uncomfortable, with the unknown, with uncertainty. So a simple little thing like choosing a different thing for breakfast every day is a little trigger to me to say, don't get too comfortable. Things can be different. So that's one thing that we have is always a different breakfast every day. And then the other thing that's probably another staple in the day is always some form of exercise. So whether it's going walking in nature, which is what my husband and I love to do, 
and we don't even have any dogs anymore. We used to walk our dogs every every day. Now, now I think we're the only people in our village that are out walking that don't have a dog to accompany them. <laughs> um, so those are sort of you know simple pleasures for me, and they make the day enjoyable. No matter what else happens, and it can be uh, very unexpected, as you can imagine, whether it's a, a coaching client at 7 a.m. that's in the Far East or somebody at 7, 8, 7 p.m. at night that's in the U.S. So sometimes my days are rather long. But in between times, there's always a walk or some form of exercise on my bike or a run or something. And there's always something different for breakfast. What wow. better a day is that? <laughs> Great. Can, can you just expand a bit on this uh, coaching that you do? Tell our listeners a little bit more about it, what it involves, what you can actually give to them and um, and how they can actually uh let's say, undertake this with you? Hmm. Well, probably the theme that uh, identifies a lot of the coaching clients that I have is is they're going through some period of transition. So it may be they've moved on to become the CEO in their organisation. They've taken on a a senior leadership position. Maybe they've moved to a different company or they're at an age in their life where they're thinking, well, what next? Is this this all that life has for me? I've made my money. Now what next? So there's that transition element that's common, common between all of them. Or they have a sense of ambition. They want to accomplish something and they realize there's something stopping them. They've got a commitment to to take action, that necessary action, but they know there's an obstacle and they can't quite put their finger on what it is or how to get around it. So that's often the starting point. And then as you've probably got a sense of by now in this conversation, I encourage them just to show up as a human being. So it doesn't matter what job title they've got or what they've done before. All of these things, I respect their uh, level of success and what they've accomplished. However, I also look at them as a human being and say, show up as yourself with flaws, with successes. And if I can create a safe space to have a conversation with them where they can just be themselves, then they will be able to start to reflect and think. And it's often what happens in those conversations is I listen, I ask questions and I start to spot patterns of behavior or things that aren't being said. And sometimes just the the nature of the question that I ask somebody, for example, what's really stopping you taking that action? It's when they don't feel they have to prove themselves to anybody else, they can probably go, hmm, yeah, yeah, is I don't really believe I can do it or something like that. And when they get that awareness, now they've got choice. They've got choice to change, to choice to do something with it. When our fears and our worries and our concerns are swirling around in our mind and we haven't expressed them, it's very hard to move forward. And I'm sure many of the listeners experience that for themselves. To get into a conversation in a safe space where you can just express yourself and somebody can hold that space, replay back to you, what you're saying, can ask a question that maybe you haven't asked before. That is the really high quality thinking space. And then those clients go off and put things into practice. They take that just one step. Say, okay, well, what would that happen if you had that difficult conversation with that person you've been avoiding? What would happen if you just asked for that pay rise or you just said, "Eh, no, I'm not going to do that and I'm going to do this. And then they go away and practice and they come back in the next session and they explain what's happened and and that they're just doing these perpetual small steps. And over the period of time, not only are they changing their behaviour, 
they're changing their mindset, their, their values and beliefs, their way of showing up as a leader in the world. And then once they've done that, they can't go back. You don't go back in, to your old self. You stay as that new transformed self. So it's perhaps a long way of answering your question, Paul. But it's it's uh, you know it's a series of coaching sessions uh, over a period of time that I would work with a an individual on to help them to to be the best they can be, and if the best they can be is showing up as themselves authentically, that in itself is inspiring from a leadership perspective for others, and there we are that ripple effect then continues on. And and you will literally take on clients from anywhere around the world. Yeah, I have clients in well, over 15 countries, I think, just now in different places. So, you know, if if a leader is a, has got a desire to change, to grow and learn and develop themselves, then, yeah, any time zone I can work with. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. With regards to your work that you do with, uh, let's say, the corporate sector, do you take them out on adventures? Not generally. I have been invited on a couple of occasions where somebody else, that organization has set up the adventure, if you like, and I've gone along as part of that experience to to share the day with them. So generally, I don't set up those adventures myself. As much as I love the physical outdoors, and sometimes I take clients on a coaching walk, if, if they're within the vicinity of the UK, obviously, and making it easier to get to that's a great way to have a conversation because there's also something that can be, a, there's a different type of conversation when it's done side by side. And I'm sure many leaders listening can also maybe, they're maybe doing this already in their organizations. I know certainly a contact of mine was telling me the other day that her boss uh, in their ch- weekly check-in meeting, it's not a meeting in an office, it's a coaching walk. And they spend half an hour going out, walking around the park locally to where the office is, and they have this different type of conversation. It's less confrontational when you're side by side with somebody. You can explore things in a different way. And again, we get the benefit of exercise and being in nature. So there's lots of different ways that we can experience things like that. Mm. So just moving on from, let's say, the walks in the park, are there any adventures in the pipeline for Sue Stockdale in the future? Yes, there are. <laughs> ah, good. <laughs> as you would probably imagine. I'm going off uh, along with my husband to Jordan, to Wadi Rum in Jordan in October. And we are going out uh, for a few days with camels and uh, the local Bedouin tribe, some of the local Bedouin tribesmen. And we're what I would call going old school. So we're camping out under the stars. We are trekking with the camels, just the the, the three of us on in the group. And uh, again, I was in Wadi Rum earlier this year for one day and the stark, amazing environment that it is, the, the, the connection back to nature. And for that whole day, a little bit like you were saying off air earlier, Paul, is being in a remote place and not speaking to anybody or seeing anybody for a number of days. I experienced that for that one day in Wadi Rum. Tourists hadn't come back yet after COVID, so there were there was really hardly anybody else there. The Bedouin tribesman I was with took me to places where he didn't think tourists would be anyway, and we spent the whole day. I was pretty much in silence because he was driving the vehicle and I was sitting in the back looking at the scenery. 
And it just reminded me of that wonder of connectedness to nature. And I immediately got back to Britain and said to my husband, we're going to Wadi Rum on an expedition. And they set it up with this Bedouin. So we're going out to have that experience in a couple of months' time. And how how much do you get involved with the sort of local culture? Because if we go back to your, let's say, your Chilean adventure, did you get the opportunity to try any of the, let's say, the uh, the herbal concoctions that were available down there? Uh, well, if you're referring to mate, the drink, the 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 the, the origin. Tinians uh, certainly uh, drink regularly. Yes, we did try. I mean, I just think no matter what culture you're, you're in, I love to to step into it and understand it and enjoy it. So because I love eating and food is uh, always a particular area of interest, there's nothing better than going to a different culture and experiencing their food. So we'll definitely be uh, eating the, the the food that the, the Jordanians would be eating out there in the desert. That's what we'll be enjoying as well with them. Even a sheep's eyeball, something like that. Would you, would you actually? Well, would you? Would you go as far as that? I wouldn't volunteer to eat it that way. <laughs> but if I was hungry, it might look appealing. <laughs> but I think I think it's a it's a great way to get to know a country. Is to it's like stepping into the shoes of somebody else. Is to experience the food, smell the smells of that environment. You know, the, the, the heat or the cold the language, all of those things just enrich one's senses and give you uh, wonderful memories. Mm. Well, my last question, what advice would you give to people wanting to dip their toes into adventuring? Well, I, I think I've probably given a few of those tips already in the conversation, Paul. I would say, you know, why not? If you're going to ask yourself why, say why not? What you like, we only have one life, as far as I see. Why not live it to the fullest and explore what you're capable of? And uh, that only starts just with one small step. One small step to learn something new. Walk down a different street in your city. Speak to your next door neighbour. Ask a question of a friend that you've never asked them before. These are all just really small things, but can bring new insight for us. So I suppose it's looking at the world with a little bit of curiosity and discovering what's possible. That's what I would invite our listener to do. Thank you sincerely for taking the time to talk to me today. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been great fun. And before we end, what are the ways people can contact you? Well, the easiest way is via my website, suestockdale.com. And that has all the social media links on there and information about coaching and books and everything else. So that would be the easiest way to do it. Thank you, Paul. I've really enjoyed our conversation and your insightful questions. Thank you.